0: I ask that you open your Bibles if you could and would to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to begin a study in just a moment concerning verses 17 and 18 as we continue to take a look at portions at least of the Sermon on the Mount. Today we're looking at this under the heading of A Fulfillment We Must Find. I heard a story told several years ago of a certain college professor who hired himself a tour guide, he wanted to go out on the lake and see if he might catch him some sort of a record of breaking fish. While they were out there on the lake, he began to question the tour guide and asking him concerning the things that he knew about, the types of learning he had been exposed to. He first asked him, he said, son, what do you know about biology? The young man in turn replied and said, well, to tell you the truth, sir, I know very little about biology. I know it has something to do with the study of human bodies, but That's about all that I know. Professor turned and said, Oh, that's uh, too bad, too bad. He then turned and asked him, He said, Son, what do you know about geology? He said, Well, uh, again, on that subject, I know very little. It has something to do with rocks, but other than that, I I just can't tell you. He said, Oh, you poor, poor boy, that's uh, too bad, just uh, too bad. He then turned and asked him, He said, What do you know about botany? The young man replied and said, well, to tell you the truth, I don't have any idea what that is, so I suppose I know nothing. He said, oh, that's uh, just too bad, just too bad. He then turned and asked him, he said, what then do you know about astronomy? He said, well, I know a lot about that. It has to do with the many stars in the sky the planets, things that God created. He said, oh, no, son, that's not exactly it. That's just too bad that you know no more than that. Then he turned and asked him, he said, dear son, what do you know about history? He said, well, I know something about history, at least the portion of history in which I live and the things I remember from my life. He said, no, I'm talking about history from long ago. He said, well, concerning that, sir, I have to be honest, I'm pretty well ignorant on the subject. I know nothing at all about history. Well, About that time, one of them thought he got a bite and the boat tipped and began to fill with water and was headed for the bottom. And the guide now, with long, powerful strokes, was making his way to the shore when he looked back. And he saw the professor coming up for the third time. And he asked him, he said, Professor, just what do you know about swimming? He said, tell you the truth, I don't know anything about swimming. Help! He said, oh, that's uh, too bad, just too bad. And he kept swimming toward the shore. Friends, I'll tell you something. I'm going to be honest about it. Someone may know everything there is to know about biology, and the study of life. But if they don't know the giver of life, they're woefully, woefully hindered. A person may know everything there is to know then about geology and how the earth was made, but if they do not know the maker of that earth, that's God, again, they're woefully hindered. Someone may know everything there is to know about botany and the study of plants, but if he fails to know about sharing sweetest rose, the lily of the valley, that's Jesus Christ, then I feel sorry for Him. They may know everything there is to know about astronomy and how the heavens go, but if some way in their life they've missed how to go to heaven, I feel sorry for them. And they may know everything there is to know about history, but they may know the facts of life, but if they do not know the One who gives life, that's God, whom Paul said, In Him we live and move and have our being. Friends, they need to study their Bibles. We need to understand that the fulfillment of everything we have for us in this life comes forth from God and from His dear Son and no other source. We can wander through life and we can look back, as many of us do. And we can look back across our lives and we can find several areas, I would assume, where we would be disappointed. Where we felt like we did not accomplish just what we had set out to accomplish, or maybe where we felt like we had not fulfilled all of our hopes and dreams. But if we'll put our faith in only one man, and that's Jesus Christ, and we'll obey him and we'll do exactly what he commands us to do, then we have no reason to leave this life not having fulfilled it. Because why? Because Jesus Christ fulfilled it. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, you'll read these words. Jesus said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now you think about that. Jesus Christ came into this earth to fulfill all things. Now, the people who looked at him in this day and time, you can only assume, the majority of them at least, if they had been, quote, religious, they would have been a part of the old law. And they would have thought much about that law of Moses. They would have thought even more about those prophets and the things that they had had to say about this, supposed at least, coming Savior. But they wouldn't have thought very much of anyone who claimed to come in and do away with those things and was not willing to fulfill all of their needs. But Jesus was. There are three areas I want you to notice today very simply and very carefully that Jesus completely fulfills the Word of God. The first one is Jesus fulfills the Word of God, for example, prophetically. If you go back in your Bibles and you read them, I mean from Genesis on into the book of Revelation... And you come through your Bible and you can encounter any time when you might begin to doubt. And you, like so many, may have come in your life and said, well, I've studied my Bible, I've read it cover to cover several times, and I just do not seem to get the point. Or maybe someone turns and says, well, I've read through the Bible and I've come to know that there are great divisions in the Bible. And honestly, there are. There is a great divide there found between the Old Testaments and the New. And someone says, therefore, because of that, I realize we today as Christians, a true statement they would make, we today as Christians live under the new law, the New Testament way of things, and therefore we are not under the old law. That's a true statement. But I've heard many who go a little bit farther than that and say, because of that, we have absolutely no use for the old law. Even one lady I can recall who came up to a preacher one evening after a sermon and told him point blank, you need not preach or teach out of that Old Testament. We don't need it. Friends, that's not true. If I have been able in my life to go through any of the Bible or all of the Bible and I have not found Jesus to be the main theme of the Bible, then to tell you the truth, we need to go back and reread it. Because it is found upon every book, upon, in every chapter, and upon every page of our Bible, we find Jesus. Because Jesus fulfilled the law of God prophetically. Let me show you something right now before we go back to our text. Turn with me, if you would, over the book of Luke. In Luke chapter 24, it is. Luke 24 and verse 27, we find a, an encounter, at least. Jesus has died on the cross. He's been resurrected, but not yet ascended. And he's going up and down the streets there and he's encountering different people on his way. And he meets two men, really back in verse 13, who are on their way to a place called Emmaus. Now the Bible says there that this is about three score furlongs from Jerusalem. That equates about seven or some odd miles. And so during this seven or some odd miles from Jerusalem down to Emmaus, Jesus now walks with these two men and they try to at least, without knowing who He is, they try to describe to Him just who Jesus was. But Jesus turns the tables. And the Bible says there in verse number 27, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, He, that's Jesus now, he expounded unto them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Now let's do some math right quick. I suppose it could be called math anyway because we could take out of the 66 books of the Bible that we know, we realize that that divides itself into 39 in the Old and 27 in the New. And what you have to really understand is when Jesus expounded Himself in all the Scriptures, not one book of the New Testament was written. Not even one. Not the gospel accounts, not the book of Acts, not any of the epistles, not any of the letters or any of the wisdom that is found in the New Testament. Not one ounce of those things are written. So if Jesus expounded Himself to these men from the Scriptures, He was talking about not but one thing and that was the Old Testament. You can see another passage where this is referenced a little bit farther into your New Testament. in John chapter 5. In John chapter 5 we find out concerning Jesus in verse 39... Jesus commanded a group of people and said, Search the Scriptures. Now that again can be nothing but the Old Testament Scriptures. Search the Scriptures, for in ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they, watch it, which testify of me. So therefore, what is the Old Testament about? It's about Jesus from beginning to end. And Jesus would come into this world to fulfill the law of God prophetically. Now back up in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, for example, in verse 15, we find out one thing about Jesus. In early on in the story, we find out that Jesus would be born of the seed of woman and he would come to this world to crush the head of Satan. Now, that's what Genesis 3.15 is about. It's the very first prophecy about Jesus. So, therefore, Jesus is mentioned in Genesis. But you go a little bit farther in your Bibles, over in the book of Exodus, and you're going to encounter a the story there where there's something called the Passover lamb. Now, what is supposed to happen at that time is the children of Israel have the opportunity there to have the death angel of God to pass over their home so the firstborn would not have to die they would slave what they called the Passover lamb and they would put the blood there upon the doorpost and the lentils of the door and it prevent death from coming. Guess what the Passover lamb is? It typifies and represents Jesus Christ. You go a little bit farther to the book of Leviticus. In the book of Leviticus, every single one of those sacrifices that you find burning there upon those smoking altars, every one of those sacrifices therefore represents Jesus Christ. In the book of Numbers, You might remember there, and Moses is there before the people. He's really become angered with them. But as he strikes the rock and water begins to flow forth, what is that water? Well, it's the living water Jesus would speak of when he sat down beside a well to talk to a woman. Jesus is found in the book of Numbers. You go a little bit farther into this in the book of Deuteronomy, you find Moses there making a proclamation, and he tells the people there that there is a prophet that is likened to me, who's coming to this earth. Why, now, that's no more than Jesus. You go a little bit farther, you find in the book of Joshua. Joshua, his name itself, meaning Jehovah saves, but he encounters a man who he knows to be called the captain of the Lord's host. A little bit farther than that, you find in the book of Judges. Why, in the book of Judges, every single one of those judges who would go in and rescue, if you will, God's people and drive them back toward God, every one of those judges, therefore, represents Jesus Christ. In the book of Ruth, Boaz, who is the kinsman redeemer of Ruth, he represents Jesus Christ. As he takes Ruth and allows her to be brought into to the midst of God's people. In the book of 1 Samuel, David, as he's being anointed to be king. Why, that represents Jesus Christ. In the book of 2 Samuel, as David now takes hold of his throne, he sits down in the throne that would be his and through which all the nations would later be blessed. Why, that represents Jesus. In the book of 1 Kings, Jesus is there depicted as the glory Lord that fills the temple. In the book of 2 Kings, he is spoken of as the preserving seed that would one day save the nations. In the book of 1 Chronicles, He is called the glorious kind. In the book of 2 Chronicles, He is there depicted as the wisdom that appeared unto Solomon to give Him wisdom. In the book of Ezra, Jesus is pictured as the God of our fathers. In the book of Nehemiah, He is the restorer of Israel. In the book of Esther, Esther there pictures Jesus nearly perfectly as she stands to intercede and to advocate for her people. In the book of Job, Job made a statement about Jesus when he said, I know that my Redeemer liveth and one day will stand upon this earth. In the book of Psalms, he's found in nearly every one of those psalms, but especially in the 23rd, where therefore he says, The Lord is my shepherd. In the book of Proverbs, he is the wisdom that came down to Solomon. In the book of Ecclesiastes, he's the only answer to true life. In the book of the Song of Solomon, he is therefore the, the bridegroom that has come forth for his bride. That's nothing more than Jesus Christ. In the book of Isaiah, he is called Emmanuel, that is to say, he will be God with us. In the book of Jeremiah, he's the divine potter that shapes our lives as he would clay. In the book of Lamentations, he is a man of sorrows, yet acquainted with grief. In the book of Ezekiel, he is seen as the glory of God. In the book of Daniel, he's a stone cut out of the mountain, yet without hands, which speaks of nothing more than his coming to this earth. In the book of Hosea, he is called out of Egypt. In the book of Joel, Jesus is the hope of his people. In the book of Amos, he's the judge of the nations. In the book of Obadiah, he's the Lord of the coming kingdom. In the book of Jonah... He's seen as Jonah would go into the Ninevites, so Jesus would take the gospel into the Gentiles. So as Jonah would spend three days and three nights in the bed of the whale, well, so Jesus would spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In the book of Michael, he's called Bethlehem's babe when the location of his birth is prophesied. In the book of Nahum, he's the stronghold of the day of trouble. In the book of Habakkuk, he's the Lord of the Holy Temple. In the book of Zephaniah, he's the king of Israel. In the book of Haggai, he's the Lord of hosts. In the book of Zechariah, he's there depicted as one who rides in on a colt in Jerusalem in the book of Malachi. He's the son of righteousness. You say, why do you read all that stuff? Because I think we ought to read it. But we ought not read it in short form. We ought to be reading it in the Bible. Jesus is the absolute reason why the Bible is written. He is the complete subject and therefore He prophetically fulfills the Word of God. Now sometimes you may be like I am and you may scratch your head and you may even wonder or even doubt and say, well, how do we know therefore that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and that He is therefore the Savior of the world? He said, i am not come to destroy the law and the prophets but to fulfill them. Let me give you an illustration of this. My mother and father live in Munford, Alabama. And we realize that if I wanted to speak to them this afternoon, the best way at least to do that would be if I would pick up a telephone, right? I could pick up a telephone, and every time I pick up a telephone, and every time I begin to dial a number, I narrow down the chances, or the possibility at least, of calling anyone else in the world. You think you're dialing your mother or father or someone's number that you're dialing to get them specifically. That's not really what's happening. You're eliminating everyone else you do not want to have a conversation with. For example, if I pick up my telephone just by picking it up immediately, I eliminate everyone in all the world that does not have a telephone. When I dial that first digit, which for me is a 1, according to my phone company, that tells my telephone company that I'm intending on dialing someone long-distance, someone who's not in my local area. When I then in turn dial that three-digit area code, which for my mother would be 205, when I dial that, I in turn narrow the field down once again, telling that telephone company this is the specific area I want to call. I dial the next three numbers of that telephone number. I narrow it down even farther, giving it now a city or a township location. In the last four digits, every one of those successive numbers takes it down billions upon billions, lowers the chances of calling anyone but her until the final digit is called. I'll tell you why I say that. Because that's how we find Jesus. We can find Him throughout our Bibles by, in some senses by dialing the number that coincides with Him. We mentioned a moment ago Genesis 3 and 15. What does that tell us? It tells us there that Jesus Christ will be born as of the seed of woman. Now that tells me Jesus will be born out of a certain race. And when I say race, I don't mean white or black. I mean a certain race as in He'll be born out of a certain kind. Not going to be born out of fish or fowl or plant or animal, but be born a human being. But not only is He born out of a certain race, you go a little bit farther in your Bible and you read again of Jesus and find that he's going to be born likewise out of a certain section of that race because when Noah steps forth off of the ark, he steps off with three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jacob, and each of those sons have a chance, you would assume, of bringing forth the seed of God, but God chooses Shem to bring forth that seed. Then he then in turn narrows the field again. Because he's not only born out of a certain race, he's born out of a certain section of that race, he's born out of a certain nation. We find out a little bit later that he'll be born after the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when you get to Exodus chapter 32 and verse 12. But not only is he born out of a certain race, a certain section of that race, a certain nation of a section of that race, he is born out of a certain tribe and that's only the tribe of Judah according to Genesis 49. And not only is he born out of a certain tribe, he's born out of a certain family. Because the Bible narrows the field down once again to remind us that he would come forth from the family of Jesse. 1 Samuel chapter 7. And not out of any family, but specifically out of one person, and that is a woman who would be a virgin. And that woman herself would not be just any virgin in any place. She would be a virgin found in Bethlehem, according to Micah 5 and verse 2. And likewise, according to Galatians 4 and 4, which Daniel had prophesied earlier. Friends, that's how you find Jesus. You can find Jesus if you begin in the book of Genesis and you track your way throughout those Scriptures which He proclaimed did testify of Him. And you can find out that, yes, as they testified later, He would in turn fulfill all of those prophecies without leaving out even one. You've heard it told several years ago, as a man by the name of Peter Stoner. Peter Stoner was a mathematician. He sat down and wrote a book one day and he wondered about the possibility of perhaps maybe Jesus just fulfilled these prophecies by happenstance. We realize today through our studies, through the studies of the scholars at least, that there are approximately 333 prophecies found in your Old Testament that are all being fulfilled by Jesus by the time we get to the New Testament. 333. Peter Stoner wasn't so sure about that. He didn't have the time to figure all of those. So he sat down and took the eight that I just mentioned. He took those eight prophecies and he sat down and did the math and at the end of the day he came up with this. He said the chances now, the chances of Jesus fulfilling only eight, not all 333, but only eight of those prophecies, the chance of him doing that by sheer happenstance, are 1 in 10 with 17 zeros behind it. I can't comprehend what that number would be. So he continued by illustrating and said it like this. He said that would be similar to a man who goes out of the state of Texas, covers the entire state of Texas three feet deep in silver dollars, walks right out in the very middle of that state, picks up one of those silver dollars, writes his name and phone number on it, tosses it back in the pile, has it to be mixed in, walks out of the state, gets another man, a total stranger, brings him back in and tells him to walk out in the pile any place that he would like, randomly pick up a silver dollar and the chances of him picking up one silver dollar on the first try that had that man's name and phone number on it are the same as Jesus fulfilling eight of these prophecies. By happenstance. Someone says, that's exactly why I don't believe the Bible. Friends, that's exactly why I do. Because this was not fulfilled by happenstance. This is not being fulfilled by chance. He said, I've not come to destroy the law and the prophets. No, don't get your feelings hurt, people. I have come to fulfill the things that are promised in those writings. That's what he's all about. But not only does he fulfill the law and the prophets, does he fulfill those things prophetically? I'll tell you something else about Jesus. He says it here in the text, really. He fulfills the Word of God practically. You see the word law, L-A-W? It's very simple. The word law there speaks in their day and time and in ours, it speaks of the practical laws or practical instructions that were given to the people that they would live by day in and day out on a daily basis. Now for them, if you go back and just in mind sight. You remember the old law. You remember the majority of the old law basically covered a few things. It had to do with sin. It had to do with sins that were being committed by men. And it had to do with the atonements that were being made for that sin, which in their day and time was very specific and set. Animal sacrifices and other offerings that had to be given one for one for the sin. Now that's what the law was about. But do you know that Jesus came and fulfilled the law of God he fulfilled it practically. You think about the moral law. Moral law, the same moral law that existed then, pretty much exists today. Even if someone is irreligious, even if someone is not concerned at all about God, the average person out on the street will tell you that certain things, like murder, like thievery, like rape, and so forth, that certain things are just innately and morally wrong. Hence, we can look to the world sometimes and say, What? Well, that's just a good, moral person. You know, Jesus fulfilled the law of God practically and He fulfilled it morally. Jesus on one occasion, for example, back in the book of John, John chapter 8 and verse 46, He's there being questioned by a bunch of His accusers and they're trying to come up with a way to trip Him up, to cause Him to stumble, and they're really trying to pin a moral law upon Him or a sin. You know what Jesus said? He looked to those men out of the mouth of God and spoke and said... Which of you convicted me of sin? Now, I challenge you to read the rest of the chapter and the next and the next and the next and the next and to the infinite last verse of the Bible. You will not find one sin they pinned upon Jesus. Not even one. So he fulfills the law of God practically and then he fulfills the moral law. But I'll tell you something else about him. He fulfills the ceremonial law too. When he said, I am not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law, he was speaking likewise of that ceremonial law. Now again, going back to what I just mentioned, it had to do with certain set in order things that must be done on any given day, or at least on any given day of the year, such as the Day of Atonement. It had to do with the dress, it had to do with the way that they walked, the way they talked, the sacrifices that they had. And by the way, in order to have the right sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, it might take you... the the entire year, to grow that animal to such perfection so that God could accept it. But ceremonially, Jesus Christ took care of that. If you go back in your Bibles and read the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, you're going to come across a location as God is creating all these things. And finally it says, and God made the stars also. That's all it has to say about it the vast universe, the stars, the planets, all that we know, all that is found therein, all that is found in other galaxies, perhaps we assume we have not discovered. God created all of those things, and He summed it up in only about five words. As if it was just some kind of a casual thing for God to create such glorious things as that. But when you compare it to something else, you'll find out that God spent more than 50. I'll say it again. He spent more than 50 chapters telling the children of Israel how to construct the tabernacle. Why? The tabernacle itself is nothing more than a tent. Why waste your time, God? I quote often John 1 and 14, The Word became flesh, and dwelt among us. You know the word dwelt there in the Greek language is the Greek word that we interpret? Tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. The Old Testament tabernacle in the ceremonial law that was set around that tabernacle and later the temple, all of those things typified the Christ who would come. Now to me, that's good news. But not only has he fulfilled the law of God practically and he fulfilled the moral law, the ceremonial law, he fulfilled the judicial law too. Ezekiel 18.20 tells us, point blank, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. We fast forward in the New Testament. We find, therefore, in it, over in uh, Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, the wages of sin is death. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, we find out that those sacrifices, speaking of the sacrifice of blood of bulls and goats, could not take away sin. So judicially, therefore, by the judicial law of God, if a man or woman sin, they are guilty and worthy of nothing more than death. But Jesus took that away. We don't have to pay that kind of penalty anymore ceremonially speaking, when you speak of Jesus, you need to know that we need no more high priest because He is it. You need to know we need no more Sabbath or day of rest because in Him we find rest. But judicially, you need to know we need no more sacrifice for our sins because Jesus came to be that. That's how John could proclaim in John 1 and 29, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. That's our sacrifice. Now someone again scratches their head and they ask then, what is the Old Testament about? I understand that it tells us of Jesus. I understand that it tells us what Jesus would do. And then in turn, his prophecy that is later fulfilled in the New Testament, I've got that. But what purpose does it really serve? And did it serve for them? If you have attended school, whether you know this or not, you studied at some point in some science class, you studied someone called Pavlov, and you studied Pavlov's dogs. You may not remember that. And he discovered something that he later would call a conditioned response. And the way he did that was very simple. He had some puppies he put in a little cage or whatever, but he had the puppies set over to the side and he would come in every morning to feed the puppies. He would bring in food, maybe raw meat, whatever it was. But right before he set the bowl down, he would always ring a bell. Ding, ding, ding. And they would eat. And he did that day after day and week after week and month after month until finally he comes in one morning, he's ready to try this experiment and he rings the bell, but there's no food. The dogs get excited and their tails wag and they begin to salivate and they're excited and they're ready to eat. You say, what does that have to do with Jesus? It has everything to do with Jesus in illustrating Him because that's what the old law did. Every time those people saw those sacrifices being slain, every time a sin was committed and the throat of a lamb or a bull or a goat was cut and it was laid upon the altar, it caused them to want, it caused them to wonder, and it caused them to seek. A final time when a sacrifice could be made which could actually take away their sins. It must have been exciting to them to think about the chances that what we have equated sin equals blood, that one day that equation will no longer be in our presence save only under one man, and that's Jesus Christ. A man of whom they all searched to see. But not only is Jesus in the text here fulfill the law of God prophetically, He fulfills the law of God practically. The next verse there, verse 18, tells us point blank, he fulfilled the law of God perfectly. Notice it with me. For verily, that is to say, this is a true statement. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth to pass away, one jot and one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law. Watch it now. Till all be fulfilled. He fulfills the law of God perfectly. A jot and a tittle, we sometimes illustrate and say, well, a jot and a tittle is kind of like a comma or a period. No, it's far less significant than that. A jot and a tittle would be like if I took and drew the letter L right here in the air and you saw the L where I went down and I went across, hopefully at a 90 degree angle, as to have it to be correct. But if I chose to make it just a little fancier, I'm put a curl at the very top. That would be the jot and the tittle, just a curl. Changes very little. Jesus said... There won't be one jot, one tittle that will ever be taken away that I have not fulfilled. You think about that. Jesus made such a bold statement. You wonder then, was Jesus sure? Did he really know? Well, there are two possibilities really. If Jesus made that statement, all will be fulfilled and I will fulfill it. If he made that statement and he could not fulfill it, he couldn't do it, but he said he could. He's a liar and he's not my God. But at the same time, if he made such a statement as that, and he knew without a shadow of a doubt that he could fulfill those things, And he did. He's my God and yours too. Whether anyone ever accepts him or not. He fulfills the law of God perfectly. He is the word of the Lord and it is the Lord of the world. Everything that he said matters. That's why in John 12 and 48, he says, The words that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last days. And as we close, think about it like this. If Jesus fulfills the Word of God prophetically, and He does, if He fulfills the Word of God practically, as we discussed, and He does, and if He fulfills the Word of God perfectly, as we know based upon the evidence, He will. If I've not obeyed Him, why not? Turn back for just a moment to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, begin reading with me verse 31, for example. It says here, Jesus speaking of himself, or God speaking of Jesus, when the Son of Man shall come into glory, and all the holy angels with him. Then shall he sit upon the throne of glory. Before him shall be gathered together nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divided the sheep from the goats, and he shall set the sheep on the right hand, but the goats on the left hand. And then the king shall say unto them on the right hand, Come ye blessed of the Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You say, now, what was he talking about there? He's describing to us a fictitious, but yet at the same time a true scene of what the day of judgment will be like. Now, in the previous chapter, chapter 24, when he's therefore questioned by his own disciples in verse 36 as to when that is coming, when is this going to occur? He says these words, But of that day and of that hour knoweth no man, know not the angels in heaven, but my Father only. Fast forward to verse 44. Therefore... Be you also ready for such an hour as you think not the Son of Man coming. Let's just think. The chance of Jesus by chance, we mentioned a moment ago, of fulfilling only eight prophecies was one in ten to the seventeenth power. But we know better. If Jesus has prophesied, if God has spoken 333 plus prophecies of Jesus, and if we are to assume 332 of those, save His second coming, have already occurred, what are the chances of Him coming again? I don't know there's enough zeros to put behind that. He's coming back. He said He would. Now if I'm here this morning, I'm not a child of God's. I'm not prepared for that coming. I'm not ready. And so for me to say that there's a fulfillment I must find, the word find need to be emphasized in my mind because unless I find fulfillment, fulfillment only found in Jesus. I hate to be like the man from earlier and say it's just too bad, too bad. It's very sad, it's very sad. to think about anyone who would miss an opportunity to go to heaven But you can have that through faith that you have in God. You can find faith just in those prophecies, just in knowing that Jesus lived and died and fulfilled the things that He proclaimed He would. That's enough to build a man's faith. The repenting of your sins, confessing His great name. That's what these men eventually had to do. All of them, whether they're willing to do it this side of eternity or not, every knee shall bow and will confess His name. But you can confess it now. And prepare yourself to be baptized to have your sins to be washed away. Peter said it was for the remission of sins. In order to have our sins to be remitted, we must be baptized in His blood. The blood that's contacted Revelation 1 and 5. And I'll find fulfillment today. If you're here today and you are a child of God, but you're not living the way that God would have you to live, you've not always put God first in your life. You'd allow things or, or activities or whatever it is to stand between you and God, don't take a chance that He will not fulfill that final prophecy today. You say, Oh, it's the fourth of July. We're celebrating freedom. You hadn't been free yet. A man and woman's not free who doesn't serve God. If you're here this morning, you want to come home. Why don't you do it through prayers and through repenting of your sins? Fly together we stand and as we sing.